0: Hi, I'm Asha Tomlinson.
1: And I'm David Common.
0: And we're hosts of CBC Marketplace. We're award-winning investigative journalists that want to help you avoid clever scams, unsafe products, and sketchy services.
2: Our TV
1: show has been Canada's top investigative consumer watchdog for more than 50 years. But this is our first podcast.
0: CBC Marketplace podcast is available now on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts.
3: This is a CBC Podcast.
2: Hello, I'm Neil Kirksall.
4: And I'm Chris Howden. This is As It Happens, the podcast edition. Tonight,
2: Bordering on chaos, the mayor of Niagara Falls, Ontario, tells us what he knows so far about the explosion at the Rainbow Bridge border crossing today and what he still wants to know
4: hope at last. A deal between Israel and Hamas will see some hostages released. The father of a man who's still being held says he's thrilled for the families of those who will be freed and he won't rest until his son is freed as well.
2: The length of the longing. Our guest has been covering hostage negotiations for decades and she fears it could be a very long time before all of the people captured by Hamas are allowed to go home
4: cryptic crosswinds, after the founder of the crypto giant Binance pleads guilty to federal charges in a U.S. court, the industry's future is less certain than ever.
2: Her cubs runneth over. The head of a B.C. wildlife shelter describes what it takes to care for and feed nearly a hundred orphaned bear cubs now in her care and the circumstances that brought them there.
4: And whatever the opposite of a jailbreak is, trespassers in a shuttered, abandoned St. Louis jail find the key to having a good time would be an actual key when they accidentally lock themselves in a cell. As it happens, the Wednesday edition, radio that gives you the hard cell. Details are continuing to emerge slowly after a vehicle exploded at the Canada-U.S. border in Niagara Falls today. Just before we went to air, New York Governor Kathy Hochul said a preliminary investigation found no indication of a terrorist attack in the incident. And while there were reportedly no explosives in the vehicle, at least two people were killed. Here's how an Ontario man visiting the U.S. side of Niagara Falls described the scene to a local NBC affiliate.
3: My wife and I were walking down Main Street here and uh, the car was coming flying back here like over 100 miles an hour. We could hardly even see me. He was going that quick. There was a car in front of him. He swerved around it and then it looked like he hit the fence and this uh, fire started and then all of a sudden he went up in the air and then it was a ball of fire like 30, 40 feet high. I'd never seen anything like it. It was really incredible. So the car was coming from the U.S. into Canada towards Canada? Yes, it was going towards Canada, yes.
4: Eyewitness Mike Gunther describing today's explosion at the Rainbow Bridge border crossing in Niagara Falls. Jim Diodati is the mayor of Niagara Falls, Ontario. That's where we reached him.
2: Mayor, what we just heard there, how does that line up with what you've been told?
3: Yep, yeah, it lines up exactly with what I know.
2: And when you heard all of that, how did you, I mean, what were your first thoughts?
3: Well, I, it was a little bit of relief because the original stories were that it was a car on the Canadian side mm-hmm. that approached the bridge. So I, I was very hopeful that that didn't happen because I know the Americans can be very protective of their borders and we'll shut them down in a second. So I was really concerned about that. The fact that that didn't happen, that was good. The second thing was that we're all concerned that this could be an act of terrorism initially. You know, like 9-11 is still fresh in many of our minds So we're worried about that, you know, there's a lot of things, a lot of conflicts and wars going on around the world. So that's the next big worry because they shut those borders down. It has a huge impact on so many people, on so many levels. So there's a collective sigh of everybody along the border as we all held our breath waiting for details. So when we heard that, that told me that it was probably an incident that was isolated. And then further to that, when I heard that they did not shut the borders in Windsor, or Sarnia or some of the other crossings, that gave me a, a right. hope for a cause for hope. And, and this is just confirming some of those details. So, yeah. I mean, it's not a good news story, but it's better than it could have been.
2: And we, we have heard from New York's governor saying that, that this was not uh, an act of terrorism uh, or a terrorist uh, attack, uh, as she put it. We know that two people were in that car and, and that they have been killed. Do you have any more details about them?
3: That's all that we have at this point. We don't know if there were two passengers or it was a passenger and a pedestrian. Mm-hmm. Those are some of the details that we don't know. And of course, the, the car was on fire and then it exploded and the damage was, was terrible. So I'm sure the investigation will turn up a lot of these kinds of details. Our, our biggest thing was just the instant and immediate impact to everybody because it's the long weekend uh u.s thanksgiving Mm -hmm. the buffalo airport's just a half hour drive a lot of people planning it's their biggest retail time of the year you know with black friday and cyber monday um the fact that you know we're coming into our holiday season a lot of things crossed our minds and we thought oh no the thoughts of closing the border still fresh in our mind from Mm -hmm. covid so it was immediate concern but uh but but certainly right now at this point, I think that's as good news as we're going to get. Also, the fact that we have now opened up the peace bridge, I think that's sending us another bit of positive news that this is isolated, it's not terrorist. And uh, they'll have to get to the bottom of exactly what happened and why.
2: In terms about the of the emotional impact in those those early hours, uh, the head of the Buffalo Common Council was was quoted in the New York Times uh, as a story developed and said, "You know, that when you talk about what's happened in Buffalo shootings, the other things that you've mentioned as well, it, it can it, it's quite triggering for some people and and, and concerning. Uh, and have you heard from your constituents in terms of their response?
3: Absolutely. Everyone Everyone collectively, a little bit of PTSD in our community with that border. I mean, we've got four border crossings. And as I say, during COVID, it was just shut down recently. And our tourism numbers are just getting back for international visitation, specifically Americans visiting. And and it's taken us a lot of effort to get things back. And we're oh, not again. So it was a lot of concern, a lot of frustration, especially, as I say, living on the border. We've got family on both sides. You know, a lot of people missed funerals and weddings and a lot of very important things when the border was closed. And, and the everybody was very stressed about it. And then with all the conflicts going on in the world right now, people thinking, oh, like, like you know, right away, sometimes we think the worst. Mm-hmm. And there was a lot of concern. And as I say, especially living on a border with our power plants here. And, and as I say, we're the number one Leisure destination in the country. We typically host 14 million people every year. We're, we've rebounded finally, and we're thinking not not again. Mm. So it, that's what I heard throughout the community from people. They're thinking, "Are you kidding me?" That's what I heard.
2: I know the investigation is is still ongoing, obviously, but is there a sense of of, of what might have happened? You know, was this a case of reckless driving?
3: Well, you know, it's just speculation at this point, mm-hmm. and I don't want to feed the the rumor mill, mm-hmm. but but. But it's it's the good part of this is that it appears at this point to not have been a terrorist attack. And, and that's really, really big. And, and our big concern, too, is if there's any kind of threat to the U.S. border, they'll just shut them all down. And that will have a big effect on us in so many ways. They're our number one trading partner, the biggest economy on the planet, all the family and friends that go across the border. And Niagara Falls, as the number one leisure destination to millions of people, On so many levels, it's terrible uh, thinking about worst-case scenarios. But Mm -hmm. as I say, we we hope for the best, but we plan for the worst. And we're prepared if we have to host people that were stranded. We've got major inventory of 14,000 hotel rooms here, and we've got the means to keep them fed and put roofs over their heads if need be in the same way that we did for the asylum seekers. So we're prepared if we need to play a role. Mm -hmm. But at this point, we're content letting the FBI conclude their investigation and happy of the fact that it's looking to not be an act of terrorism. And given the fact that they've already opened up the peace bridge, that's already sending a positive signal our way. So slowly it's making us feel a little more at ease. But again, we'll be waiting with bated breath to see the outcome of the investigation. Mm
2: -hmm. Mayor, thank you for your time.
3: It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me.
4: Jim Diodati is the mayor of Niagara Falls, Ontario, and that's where we reached him. After weeks of anguish for the families of the hostages taken by Hamas, there is finally a deal. Hamas will release 50 hostages. In exchange, Israel will free 150 imprisoned Palestinians. The hostages returning to Israel will be women and children, which, of course, leaves dozens of people who are still being held captive. One of them is Sagi Dekalchen. He's the father of two young girls, and he went missing during the attack on Kibbutz Oz. We reached his father, Jonathan Dekalchen, in Sarasota, Florida.
2: Jonathan, this, this news that some of the hostages will soon be free, how did that news hit you?
1: Overall, I was absolutely thrilled because it is here. we indeed are, are going to be seeing the release of 50 hostages and there are going to be 50 or so uh, families in Israel and perhaps elsewhere that are absolutely thrilled with this news, so I couldn't be happier for them. That will not, however, stop us from continuing to campaign for the release of all 240 hostages and not just this one first batch.
2: That includes your son. So when did you learn, Jonathan, that Segui was not on this list? Well,
1: honestly, I don't think anybody was expecting that he would be on the list. We, you know, through press reports over the last couple of days, it was clear that it was going to be women and children. I, I would just like to add that in truth, if the current list that's been publicized is correct, I know very, very closely many of these children and their moms, uh, Sagi and I are from Kibbutz near Oz, mm-hmm. which was completely destroyed during the Hamas attack of October seventh. Seventy-five of our members were taken hostage, and there are multiple um, mothers and their children that are my neighbors, my friends, my kids' friends, my grandchildren's friends, who I hope by tomorrow at this time will be back amongst their loved ones and 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 safe.
2: You're able to 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 balance those feelings, you know, as best you can. But when you talk about your well, grandchildren, your son has two daughters, just two and six. Just to let our listeners know, they must be asking so many questions.
1: There are. So many questions that they ask that we simply don't have answers for, of course, about their dad, where he is, what's happened to him, how is he feeling. And There are also questions that they ask about when they can go home, and it's just impossible to tell them that they can actually never go home because our home, as we knew it, was completely destroyed. Uh, the Hamas terrorists murdered uh, more than two dozen of our members, as I said before, took mm-hmm. captive. Approximately 80, 75 uh, remain in Hamas captivity and uh, looted all of our property from the personal items to you know, all of our farm equipment and then burned everything else to the ground. So we, we have no answers to all of these totally legitimate questions that come from my grandkids and, and, and everyone else's.
2: How are they coping? They're so small
1: you know children in general can be very resilient if they're surrounded by love and yeah, we we tell them what we can and what we know which isn't all that much you know I, I they're doing as as all of us are doing the best we can under these horrific circumstances
2: i'm so sorry you're all going through this jonathan can you tell us more about your son what's he like
1: yeah, well, Sagi is, is a 35-year-old, a father of two, and, and his wife, Avital, is due to give birth to their third daughter within the next couple of weeks, a very dedicated dad, and uh son that any any father would love to have since he was a little boy. He and I have kind of been playmates and then workmates, actually, and on some projects together, uh, social justice projects, and then some entrepreneurial things that he's been pursuing over the last few years. Sagi, if I had to describe him in just a couple of words, is a builder and a creator of things, of of projects that serve other people. Uh, one of the things he's been involved with sort of as a, a moonlighting um, business is creating out of old buses. He repurposes them for other marvelous things. So his first project was to create uh, grocery stores for food deserts in the south of our country. There are all sorts of communities that don't have grocery stores or anything like them. Actually, the morning that he was kidnapped, he was working on a new project converting old airport buses to mobile technological classrooms for Bedouin communities and Jewish communities in the south of Israel. And at that moment, he was working, again, to refurbish these buses, and uh, that's when he was one of the first on our kibbutz to Mm -hmm. spot a group of terrorists who had infiltrated the kibbutz. And he put out the alarm uh, Mm -hmm. to all of our community.
2: When you list his achievements, um, you're proud. I can hear that.
1: I'm very proud, and I'm really sorry right now that, you know, for now at least, him being in captivity with another 239 people, of course, is keeping him from doing you know the the wonderful things that he does for communities.
2: You've you've never received no word about him since since. No, we have not. Him.
1: Since 9:30 in the morning on October 7th, when we lost communications with him, mm-hmm. uh, we've heard nothing or, or no sign of life. And your listeners may know, Hamas is uh, forbidden the Red Cross to have any contact whatsoever with uh, the hostages, which is outrageous in itself. So uh, neither I nor any of the other families have had any sign of life since uh, people were taken captive on October 7th.
2: Does this this latest news and these developments, the release and the pause in fighting for now, does it give you hope that sagui will be back home soon?
1: If we were Considering uh, you know, a hostage-release deal with any other scenario, it might. But the reality is we're dealing here not with a government, not with a rogue government. We're dealing with a savage terrorist organization, uh, Hamas. If anyone had any doubts about their true character before October 7th, then I hope there are no more doubts about that. That doesn't mean that this characterizes all Palestinians or all Gazans, but that organization that rules the Gaza Strip. Um so it's very difficult to know right now. First of all, the Hamas has to actually deliver on these 50 people. And once we see that, even then it's going to be difficult to really be optimistic about what the possibilities are. Again, because we're dealing with an organization that clearly puts no value on human life, be it Israeli, uh, Jewish and Muslim, by the way. Uh, that assault killed you know, a significant number of Muslims as well, Israeli Arabs that they encountered, that Hamas uh, terrorists encountered, and nor their own people. Do they really value their lives, the people of Gaza? So I'd like to be optimistic, but at the moment I'm trying to stay as level-headed as possible. And I think that's the best way right now to do whatever is possible for Sagi and the other hostages.
2: Jonathan, thank you very much for your time.
1: Thank you very much for hosting me.
4: That was Jonathan Dekelchen. He's in Sarasota, Florida. You can find that interview along with some photos on our website, cbc.ca slash AIH. The family of Abigail Moore Eden is hopeful that she'll be among the hostages released this week. She is three years old and will turn four on Friday. Her cousin Noah Naftali spoke to our colleagues at CBC News Network. Here's part of what she had to say.
0: Our heart is with her every moment of every day and we understand that as hard as this is for us, it is more difficult for her and that keeps us going with the hope that we can see this girl, hug her and give her the love that she deserves. After her parents were brutally murdered in front of her and she's now been held by the same people who murdered her parents for 46 days.
4: That was Noah Naftali talking about her three-year-old cousin Abigail Moore Eden. Robin Wright has seen a lot of hostage negotiations unfold. She's a former Middle East journalist and now a joint fellow at the U.S. Institute of Peace and the Woodrow Wilson International Center. We reached her in Washington, D.C.
2: Robin, there is so much at stake for the families. No one is home yet. How solid, in your view, is this agreement, this deal between Israel and Hamas?
5: It's the most significant deal since the beginning of the war on October 7th. The fact that all sides appear to have confirmed it and have a timetable for the first releases is important. You know, the final details and the timing was the last hiccup. The problem is this only involves about 50 of the more than 200 hostages that are held by Hamas. And the danger is that this becomes a very long and drawn-out process that may play out even longer than the hostilities
2: themselves. What kinds of things are you going to be watching for in this initial deal over these next four days when this is all supposed to to unfold and the fighting is supposed to stop? What are you looking for?
5: Well, the most important thing is that there is no violence. And the one big danger is that the Palestinian Islamic Jihad movement, which also has hostages, is not part of the deal. And the danger is that it may try to disrupt the process, the release of hostages, Uh, by Hamas, the release of prisoners held by Israel, by opening fire someplace, by firing a rocket, and leading Israel to respond, and then the breakdown of the process. So that's really important, first of all. Second is whether this four-day process can be extended so that it covers a longer pause and a wider exchange of hostages held by Hamas and Israeli prisoners. It's quite clear that Hamas is willing to give up some of the people it holds, but only under pretty tough circumstances Mm -hmm. or conditions. And that is that roughly three prisoners held by Israel for everyone that Hamas holds. So the release is disproportionate, but it is really critical in terms of lengthening the pause in the conflict.
2: And what do we know about the Palestinians that Israel is, is going to release as part of this deal?
5: We know virtually nothing, except that there may, may be largely minors, women, uh, people who are uh, imprisoned for relatively or comparatively minor charges, such as throwing rocks. Uh, that's what has been reported out of Israel, and that's really all we know. I, I think there is, at this stage, still not even a complete list of who each side is going to release. I think that's still in the works.
2: We were just speaking to, as our listeners heard, the father uh, of a 35-year-old man, his his children and his wife, who's who's due to give birth, you know, the feelings that, that people are holding, you know, on one hand, happy for the others they know from their communities who are likely to be released, but the agony of waiting for their own loved ones to be freed as well. Based on what you've seen and what you know of these kinds of situations, how long do you think they will be waiting?
5: Well, I've covered hostage crises around the world for over 45 years, and the problem is it often takes a lot longer than anybody anticipates anybody wants. It is the human trauma that captivates the world and tears your heart out. In the case of Gilad Shalit, an Israeli soldier seized by Hamas, Uh, 18 years ago. He was held for five years before he was released, and Israel had to release more than a thousand prisoners it held to win his freedom. And so the one bit of leverage that Hamas has in all of this uh, is the number of hostages that it holds, and it will use that leverage to the full extent to get whether it is the release of prisoners in Israeli jails, more humanitarian aid, greater public attention for its cause, and of course it wants time to reorganize, regroup and rearm.
2: We're nearly two months into this conflict now, based on what you've seen unfold, the climate this time. Do you think that that we're at a point where we'll see a sustained ceasefire?
5: Given the pattern of conflicts between Hamas and Israel in the past. Unfortunately, I'm a little bit pessimistic. The pattern has often been that there is a negotiated ceasefire or pause, whatever term you want to uh, use, and then there is a resumption of hostilities. All the ceasefires in the past have been temporary, some lasting weeks, some lasting years, but both of them are absolutist in their goals. Hamas wants to eliminate Israel, and Israel wants to eliminate Hamas, and that doesn't give you much hope for the kind of compromise that Israel worked out eventually, after years of conflict with the PLO. And so the stakes are larger than they've ever been for both sides, and they're existential in scope. And so, you know, whether there's a pause that lasts more than four days uh, or more than four months, the danger is that because both want to eliminate the other, that this war in one way or another is not going to end in the very near future.
2: And innocent people are caught in the middle. Indeed. Robin, I appreciate your time again. Thank you. Thank you.
4: Robin Wright is a joint fellow at the U.S. Institute of Peace and the Woodrow Wilson International Center. She's in Washington, D.C. It's been a turbulent month in the crypto world, more turbulent than I assume most months are in the crypto world. A few weeks ago, Sam Bankman-Fried, founder of the cryptocurrency exchange FTX, was found guilty on several counts of fraud and conspiracy. Now, the world's largest cryptocurrency exchange has been dealt a serious blow. Yesterday, crypto giant Binance and its founder, Shengpeng Zhao, pleaded guilty to violating anti-money laundering legislation in a U.S. district court. The company will pay a fine of more than $4 billion, and Mr. Zhao, who faces a hefty fine of his own, has stepped down from his role as Binance's chief executive. Elizabeth Lopato is a senior reporter for The Verge, who covers cryptocurrency. We reached her in Oakland, California.
2: Elizabeth, what does how this case has, has ended, what does that signal to you about where things are at with with crypto?
0: Well, I think this is mostly a positive outcome. Uh there were questions hanging over binance around what kinds of enforcement actions might be going on for years now and this wraps it up with a fine and essentially settles some of those questions Um, and they are the most serious questions that binance was facing
2: just tell our listeners what was at the heart of this case and what the company was facing
0: so part of it had to do with money laundering and Mm -hmm. sanctions violations both of which are quite serious Um, the u.s legal system extends as far as the dollar extends you don't actually need to be in the u.s for it to apply and binance um, allegedly facilitated billions of dollars of crypto transactions without implementing know your customer checks and the problem with that is that um, it makes it possible for money to be sent for instance uh, by criminals or to criminals And one of the specific problems that they had was um, allegations that Binance had processed um, millions of crypto transactions between people in the US and people in Iran, as well as uh, potentially financing certain terrorist organizations, um, including uh, Hamas, Al Qaeda, and uh, the Islamic State.
2: So this is, you know, we know the company is going to continue to operate with a a new chief executive. So what will this mean for the company?
0: Well, there's a a $4 billion fine, Mm -hmm. which is not uh, insubstantial. It is, in fact, one of the largest fines I think that a corporation has ever paid in the U.S. But, you know, keep in mind that there are something like $65 billion of assets currently on the platform. So while it is a, a significant and I would suggest painful amount, there's still plenty of money in Binance. And I think that there is probably still a positive outcome for people who are uh, in the crypto industry and are interested in seeing it become
5: legitimate.
2: We know that there's there's a civil lawsuit as well with the SEC. So you, do you think we'll see more more fines for Binance?
5: Uh, It seems
0: possible and even likely. The SEC lawsuit is a little bit different because in addition to the criminal charges, there were also charges from the Treasury and the CFTC that settled out, too. Mm -hmm. Um, So the SEC question is sort of about who gets to regulate crypto. Is that the SEC? Is that the CFTC um, or some other group? And I think that there are significant questions about whether that lawsuit will resolve in the SEC's favor.
2: And in terms of regulation, where do you think things will end?
0: <laughs> if I knew that sort of thing, I would be investing rather than reporting. <laughs> um, but, you know, I, I, the, the SEC case is one of several that the SEC has brought against a number of exchanges. There does seem to be some sort of internal power struggle. One possible outcome that is probably the best for the crypto industry is legislation getting passed that um, solidifies all of this and essentially renders the SEC suit moot which is a possibility. I mean, these suits can take mm-hmm. a while to resolve. Um, there's also the possibility that the SEC loses and it turns out that this is not under the SEC's jurisdiction.
2: And in terms of CZ himself, do you think he will serve any jail time? <laughs> Another uh, open well, it's question. hard to predict a judge. <laughs>
0: um, but in similar cases, typically um, there is probation rather than jail time. Mm-hmm. Um, and if my memory serves, I think he's not looking at very long if he is indeed looking at jail time. This, I think, is is a pretty positive outcome for Zhao himself. He is paying a fine too, by the way. He's he's paying, um, I think, $50 million. Uh, So, you know, if you consider how much he is personally worth, I think it's 10 billion. That is a relatively light fine for him.
2: So we know CZ isn't going to be CEO any longer, but what do you think his relationship will be with the company after all of this?
0: He is the majority shareholder of Binance, mm-hmm. and so naturally there is going to be some relationship there. What that relationship looks like strikes me as being an open question.
2: What do you think this all signals, Elizabeth, to, to people who who trust crypto, who are investors in this and investors in Binance?
0: I think there are two sort of things that are happening. Um you know, crypto has been the Wild West for a very long time, and I think there have been a lot of uh, investors who've been sitting on the sidelines because, they're, because of this regulatory uncertainty, essentially. So this is providing some degree of certainty that allows people to sort of figure out where they stand in terms of professionalizing crypto investments. Because one of the other um, sort of pieces of professionalized <laughs> investing floating around is the possibility of a Bitcoin exchange-traded fund, um, which may very well be coming. So there's a little more certainty in investors generally like that. There are still some regulatory questions, but there is no longer a question about whether Binance is going to continue as a going concern. It clearly is. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are certainly people in the crypto industry that view these enforcement actions against Binance and against FTX in particular as clearing out some of the more questionable elements of the crypto industry so that ordinary people and the ordinary financial uh, system becomes more comfortable with it so there is an element of almost um, satisfaction i might say among certain parts of the crypto industry
2: and what about people who are already wary of crypto
0: it may very well be that there is this period of um, short-term distrust and uncertainty followed by a, a longer term boom It may very well be that we have uh, a longer-term distrust of the industry. I know one of the um, effects of FTX that perhaps the industry hasn't totally dealt with was how effectively Sam Beckman-Fried made himself the face of crypto Mm -hmm. and how a a tremendous a blow it was when he was revealed to be scamming his customers. Um, That is uh, the kind of problem that the industry doesn't recover from quickly.
2: Elizabeth, I appreciate your time. Thank you.
0: Thank
4: you. Elizabeth Lopato is a senior reporter for The Verge. We reached her in Oakland, California. Who doesn't love fictional bears? Winnie the Pooh, Paddington, Yogi Bear, Boo Boo. They're cute and witty, and they love to eat. Actual bear cubs are a bit more challenging. They're not really witty at all. They do really love to eat, and they're cute for sure. But as adorable as it is to see one or two from a safe distance, it's a whole other thing to be surrounded by 94 of them. This year, a shocking number of bears have shown up in communities in British Columbia, and BC's Northern Lights Wildlife Shelter has been dealing with them. Angelica Langen is the manager and co-founder of the shelter. We reached her in Smithers.
2: Angelica, you're at the shelter right now. It sounds pretty quiet, but what does it look like around you? Where are all these cubs? (laughs) Yeah, it's pretty busy
7: right now. Um, I'm at the moment in our what we call hospital intake room um, because I was processing rescues from yesterday we rescued two more cups yesterday where i'm right now like i said is is a hospital uh, a little bit more quiet down here than it is uh side but the outside uh noises are more the wild birds and so on the bears are pretty quiet in this colder temperatures yeah. right now and do a lot of uh snoozing uh besides the occasional eating
2: smoothing did you say or schmoozing Snoozing, they snoozing, sleep. <laughs> sleeping. They're sleeping. Okay, I can, I can, I can relate. And they're uh, getting used to their new environment, uh, and clearly, so they're they're still coming. You, you expect more they're rescues. They're still coming. Mm-hmm.
6: Yeah,
7: um, there will be another push once the temperatures get really cold mm-hmm. and snow is on the ground, because people will see the tracks and and be more aware that they actually have a a cup around. So mm-hmm. <clears throat> we expect to be busy right up into Christmas.
2: And beyond snoozing, they're eating as well. How do you keep up? How do you feed 94 and plus cubs?
7: Oh, it's it's a challenge, that's for sure. We have some wonderful local stores that support us with um, fruits and vegetables that are no longer good for human consumption. So those we pick up daily. We also get road kills from the highway maintenance department, mm-hmm. and we work with some of the fish hatcheries. And we have several freezes full of fish.
2: So they're well How much food are they going through? How many, how many pounds of food are we talking about?
7: I know, don't know the total, but I know that we're using four boxes of apples each week. And each box is uh, 860 pounds. So if you do the
2: Yeah, <laughs> you know, We're joking a bit about, about this influx and everything they're eating. But, but why is this happening? Well, it was a perfect storm,
7: so to speak, uh, in, in a negative way, um, because uh, what happened was the droughts and the fires. It really pushed the bears into areas closer to lakes and rivers, and that's typically where people are situated. And um, then there was very little, how do you say, compassion for bears in your backyard. And there's been a lot of uh, complaints to conservation officers that people feel threatened, and uh, also, just illegal shootings where people mm-hmm. took matters in their own hand and and just shot the bear that was in their yard. So that left us with a tremendous amount of cubs uh, all over, and we've been trying hard to get to them and give that, at least them a chance in life.
2: Yeah, they've they've lost their parents. We've we've had conversations about how environmental changes, just this past season, uh, have. We've seen bears, you know, show up in places that they're that they're not normally at and emaciated in some cases, dangerous in others. But how are people responding to the cubs?
7: Well it's 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 a mixture. Like some people are really concerned and, and they call us and, and, and they want to be involved and they want to help and, and so on. And in and others just say, Oh just shoot them. They're just gonna be big bears and be a problem next year. Yeah. So it's It's a bit of a mixed reception that we get when we go into these communities to rescue cubs. But in the overall, you know, I think people are glad that uh, these cubs get a second chance and Mm -hmm. and don't follow the same trail that their mother took. And They're just not able to survive on their own, right? Mm -hmm. High carbonation without her body heat means that they will have to be a lot heavier and a lot better shape than usual because they have to keep themselves warm mm-hmm. and with a lack of food, that's just not a goal that they can reach.
2: And how many would you normally encounter or have to take care of you and your staff? How many Cubs? Between 40 and 60 mm-hmm.
7: for the season, so that would be till March. Um, and then, you know, that's then when we get the new Cubs in from from the next year. But um,
2: yeah, we will be
7: way over that. I think we will be going past 100 this year, mm-hmm. so
2: you know, they're, they're they're little bears now. They need you and that warmth that you talked about, but they're going to become much larger. And what's going to happen to them? What is the plan for that phase well, of their the life? Well,
7: the plan is, the way it goes here with us is that uh, end of May, beginning of June and into June, we're releasing all of them again. So all of them will be returned to the regions that they came from, uh, not, of course, not into the city. So uh, if we caught something in the middle of Prince George, it will not go back there. Um, we've been doing this for almost 34 years now. Typically the uh, black bears when we release them don't disperse more than 25 kilometers from the sites that we pick for them.
2: Your team, as you've said, you've been doing this for decades. so your team will be used to, to saying goodbye to to these bears. but uh, <laughs> is it going to be harder this time? there's more of them, their attachments must happen.
7: It's kind of a mix, you know mm-hmm. I mean this is why we do it. So, it's always a really good feeling to be able to let an animal go that came in in really bad condition, and we were able to make the difference and give it that chance in life. But of course, you always have your favorites, you know, and you're going to, well, I'm going to miss you. But usually, by the time they go, we already have the new ones in
2: to keep us busy. New favorites. Which which one's your favorite now? It
7: makes it a little bit easier.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Which one's your favorite now?
7: I have, like, I don't because I've been just on rescues and just Mm -hmm. had, like, I have my favorite rescue stories, but I don't have the day-to-day contact, but, um, I talked to our chief keeper yesterday and she said that they have one in there that's really cheeky and, um, you know, if they turn their back on him, he's all of a sudden sitting in the wheelbarrow and those <laughs> kinds of things. So so they want to name him Pinocchio. We have a Disney name scene this year, so mm-hmm. that's what they chose for this little guy.
2: Pinocchio. Well, well, good luck to you and your team and, and the Cubs, Angelica. Thank you. Thank you so much for having us.
4: That was Angelica Langen, manager and co-founder of Northern Lights Wildlife Shelter in Smithers, British Columbia. It's been over a year since the U.S. Supreme Court's Dobbs decision, which overturned the constitutional right to an abortion. Now, for the first time, researchers have enough data to analyze how abortion bans have impacted birth rates in states that enacted bans. The Institute of Labor Economics published a new analysis based on the first six months of the year. Caitlin Myers is one of the authors of the paper. She also provided the Supreme Court with predictions about what might happen if Roe v. Wade was overturned. We reached her in Middlebury, Vermont.
2: Professor Myers, how does it feel to be right in this case? Oh, I try to just be
6: a neutral scientist, you know. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, I I try to be really dispassionate about the forecast and I I try to be dispassionate about the follow-up to to look at it. Um, What I see is that travel distance could be a really substantial barrier to people seeking abortions before Dobbs. And the evidence is that continued to be the case after Dobbs, that it didn't change in in any significant way. And that, yes, a large number of people out in banned states are finding a way to get out, but there's this significant minority, a group that's disproportionately the poorest and the most vulnerable of an already poor and vulnerable population, mm-hmm that isn't managing to find a way to get a desired abortion.
2: Try is the operative word in what you were saying earlier in your answer there. Yeah. yeah. Why do you think it's important to, to try to do that? As you said, try to be dispassionate.
6: I see my role in this really um, fractious area as bringing the facts and the evidence to bear. I I understand as somebody who comes from a a deeply conservative, rural, Southern uh, background and who now lives in a very different part of the United States and in fairly liberal Vermont, um, I really deeply understand that there are people operating in good faith on both sides of an argument and that some of what informs people's opinions are questions of ethics that as an economist, I can't answer. I have my own personal answers, but as an economist, I can't answer them. But then there are so many questions in this field that are just about fact. What happens when you limit people's access to reproductive health care? What, you know, do they find a way? Who does? Who doesn't? What happens next in their lives? And I think it's really important, regardless of how people feel about the ethics of abortion, to understand that these abortion bans are impacting women and their families that at least in this first year post dobs it looks like about 30,000 people will give birth who otherwise wouldn't have uh, because they weren't able to access desired abortion services and to think as a society about what that means in terms of other public policy and the provision of, uh, you know, a social safety net for poor and vulnerable families.
2: And and how do you know that, that the increase in births w- was because of the, the bans, but and not other factors. Yeah.
6: So it's a great question. So we all know correlation isn't causation. So you can't just look at trends in births and say, oh, if, if the, you know, if the trend in if birth changed this way in this state, it must be, because of the ban because there's all sorts of things happening over the course of a year. So what we do is we use a, a sophisticated new statistical methodology is developed by a team including uh, an economist who won the Nobel Prize uh, for developing econometric methodologies like this and it's called synthetic difference in differences and it's really cool. Basically what it does is it allows us to look at how births changed in band states and then construct A control group from the rest of the country by using this methodology to pick other areas that were trending really, really similarly to the banned states up until the point of the ban. So what that means is we can take a group where we see births are trending really, really similarly in the banned states and a group of protected states right up until, and it really happens, you can see it in the graph so beautifully, six months after Dobbs, right when you're going to start to see people begin to give birth because they didn't access abortion services. Mm-hmm. And that's exactly where you see their trends diverge. And you see in the banned states that births increase. And you'd have to tell a pretty tortured story to try to figure out some other explanation for that, like something else that simultaneously happened in those 13 banned states at exactly the same time that, that affected their births and didn't affect births in the rest of the country. So I'd say the evidence
2: is um, you know about as strong as it gets. Mm-hmm. And do you have a sense, Professor Myers, about who exactly is is most affected here? So far
6: in the births data that have been released We can see that women in their early 20s are more impacted by distance than women who are older. And we also can see that women of color are more impacted than non-Hispanic white women. It's also really completely in keeping with what we know about The burdens and obstacles that abortion restrictions place on people seeking abortions in all sorts of contexts, it's often these groups that are disproportionately impacted.
2: We also know that the total number of legal abortions in the U.S. since Dobbs has increased, albeit slightly. So how do you reconcile those two, that that abortions can be up at the same time as as births?
6: Yeah. So I think that's a really important observation. And um, I I think it's important for people to understand that there's no contradiction there. Two things are happening at once. First of all, the Dobbs decision has almost paradoxically expanded abortion access in some of the protected states because it really accelerated uh, the increasing of new service availability through new providers in places like Southern Illinois, expanded capacity, but particularly expanded access to medication abortion through telemedicine, which people became, it became both more available and people became more aware of that as an option. So what we're seeing is abortions rising in places like New York and California that are not Destinations for many people coming out of banned states. What's happening in these states is that more of their own residents who might previously have experienced barriers to accessing abortion services are, are obtaining them now. At the exact same time, there are populations from banned states who have experienced dramatic reductions in access many of them are still finding a way, but the significant minority isn't. The net effect seems to be that they're increasing maybe a a little bit, very slightly. But really what that's a sign of is the inequality of access that is growing. And you can't fully see that until you look at the birth data and see, oh, we've got this evidence that when all is said and done, there's this population of residents of banned states who clearly weren't finding a way to access services.
2: Well Professor Myers, I I have a feeling we'll speak again. I appreciate your time. Yeah, thank you. It was my pleasure.
4: Caitlin Myers is the John G. McCullough Professor of Economics at Middlebury College. We reached her in Middlebury, Vermont. The Vancouver neighbourhoods of Chinatown and Gastown are among the city's oldest and most distinctive, which is why so many people are so nervous about new proposed provincial legislation. The new rules could allow 8 to 20-storey buildings within 800 metres of SkyTrain stations in an effort to boost housing near transit hubs. And some are afraid that could have profound effects on those neighbourhoods, both of which have protected heritage status. Andy Yan is an urban planner and the director of Simon Fraser's City Programme. We reached him in Vancouver.
2: Andy, how do you think these new zoning rules might change Chinatown and Gastown in Vancouver, as you know them?
8: Well, I think that it's really how in the 1960s, the original zoning rules were brought forward to prevent the development of a freeway, the city of vancouver actually tried and and actually that at multiple levels of government actually tried putting a freeway through this chinatown but that uh today i think the danger is that this brings in not a freeway of cars but a freeway of condos and that unfortunately uh with this particular uh, provincial legislation it doesn't actually acknowledge the role of existing zoning uh zoning and height bylaws but instead uh forces through a sizable height new height and density in terms of building what it takes away is one of the oldest chinatowns that exists on the west coast of north america it is a chinatown through which was fought for in terms of its existence
2: what do you think is motivating this here
8: Well, I think what's motivating this actually, ironically, are the best intentions of trying to bring in housing Mm -hmm. to British Columbia and affordability to British Columbians, but yet at the same time, not recognizing the role of local governments and local conditions.
2: You acknowledge the the housing issue, certainly. Uh, Vancouver in particular is not known for its affordable housing or a a glut of available housing. So is there really another option here? I mean, the homes have to be built somewhere. And I
8: think that it's very much looking at building across the region and certainly within the city of Vancouver that there are housing opportunities for greater intensification. But then I think the need to really deal with the people who are already living there and in ways of minimizing, I think, the disruptions to, the, to that existing population, but yet at the same time, uh, building affordable housing for local
2: incomes. B.C.'s Housing Minister Ravi Kalan told reporters, quote, communities that have heritage sites will still be able to make decisions around if they want to see heritage sites being developed, end quote. So does that thinking reassure you at all?
8: Uh, Not necessarily, because when you look at the legislation, it talks about how these heightened density mandates override the existing bylaws in terms of heritage.
2: What would you like them to to do differently or to have done differently to assuage your concerns?
8: Well, I think a lot of it is actually recognize existing local conditions and to work with those local conditions in terms of failed history in this mm-hmm. case, but then also in terms of who is already living in, the, in, living in these neighborhoods. Um, mm-hmm. in, in a further study, I've discovered that 50% of the people who live in these neighborhoods are actually renters. And, though, and it's really renters in this particular housing crisis that are really under stress and how this legislation doesn't necessarily deal with that type of possible displacement.
2: Who do you think it will benefit?
8: I think that for certainly those, it's going to benefit, I think, existing landowners. I think that it goes into uh, property speculators. And I think that that is really a challenge that can be, I think, addressed with in this existing proposed legislation if the government wants to.
2: See, it sounds like you think they're just it's the same old, same old, the repeating patterns that we've seen before.
8: I think that we're certainly given a generational opportunity to make a change in housing, but then that generational change hopefully will not result in a generational mistake.
2: These are also neighbourhoods with with buildings dating way back, I mean, to to the 1800s even. So how much of, of your concern is about preserving that architecture and that history?
8: It's very much how that built history, that built environment has an opportunity to inform this generation as well as future generations about how the city has grown and changed. But yet at the same time, I think that those buildings have a particular value for the tangible and intangible histories of Vancouver to be shared with future generations.
2: What do you love about Chinatown and Gastown?
8: I love that it reminds us from where we've come from and gives us the opportunity to reach out to where we're going.
2: There are some who are concerned that this is actually part of an even wider trend. When we talk about Chinatown in particular, people are fighting to preserve Chinatowns in in a number of North American cities. So what do you think is in store for Chinatowns in Vancouver and elsewhere in the years to come?
8: Well, I think what's in store is really the question of what is the histories of the city, who speaks in these histories, and I think that part of this is really the grassroots actions to really deal with the importance of expanding urban memories to include the tremendous diversities of those who built Canadian cities and cities around North America. And I think that this is really, I think, the consequences when you have the kind of grassroots actions to protect and to grow these communities and yet at the same time have these challenges come from the top down.
2: Do you think the the concerns that you're expressing and others are expressing, I mean, do you see a window to actually get the province to make the changes that you're looking for here?
8: Um, I'm not sure if I necessarily see a window, but then it represents a mission that this is not just about me or just a few group of people today, but it presents a long tradition in terms of advocacy for Chinatowns, for community in general, that this is, a, I think, very much a Canadian tradition for neighborhoods and those who love and cherish these neighborhoods to stand up for them and also to ensure that in standing up for them, we also have the ability to share them with the rest of the city
2: and country. Andy, thanks for your time.
8: Always a pleasure.
4: Andy Yan is an urban planner and the director of Simon Fraser's City program. He's in Vancouver. It's one of those funny things that could happen to anyone who was trespassing in a recently shuttered city jail. After all, isn't it human nature in that situation to want to check out a cell? Hey, guys, you might say to your trespassing pals, imagine being in jail. One of your pals might answer, we don't have to imagine. Then you might say, you know, but that's not what you meant. And they might say, they know, but you know what, I'm just going to skip the conversation that might happen then. Because after that, all three of you would head into a cell together. Look at us, you'd shout in unison. We are in jail. We're in a medium security facility in St. Louis that was closed last year amid allegations of inhumane conditions. Which is when it dawns on you just how small the cell is that you are in and how uncomfortable it would be to actually be stuck in there. Don't don't lock us in, you might say to the guy between you and the door. What, like this, he might reply, laughing and slamming the door, as you remember you've always hated that guy and that you really didn't want to bring him along because this is what he's like. And then he might stop laughing, because now you all realize you are all well and truly locked in. Well, some version of that story actually did happen last week in St. Louis, and at some point those three men made their one phone call to 911. They were rescued by police and immediately arrested. And then presumably for the second time in a single day, they didn't have to imagine being in jail.